This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I am Matt Fonslow, and lucky for you, I have none other none other than the Tanner Brandt on. We had joked around last time after talking about visual inspections and flashlights about thermal imaging cameras, and here we are. We're going to talk about it. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Napa. Planning on attending Apex? Make sure to stop by the Napa Auto Care booth on the first floor for a meet and greet with the 2021 NHRA champion, Ron Caps. He'll be there on Tuesday, November 1st, between 10.30 and 11.30 a.m. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Tanner. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate you coming back. Of course. Always fun to talk about things that we enjoy that others may or may not enjoy. but <laughs> might put people to sleep, but... We're here. I, I think tonight's will be good. Uh, I think we have a man. I've talked about this in the past and just different ways to use thermal imaging cameras. And we'll probably talk a little bit about uh, maybe cell phone cameras and stuff like that, too. We'll see how down the rabbit hole Matt and I get on other things, but try to keep it on topic. First, we want to talk about some politics. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> probably, I suppose, really to just get the ball rolling. The thermal imagers I have right now is I have a thing. I'm pretty sure it's the second generation Snap-on. We had the first one that came out. It was okay. It was better than most of what we had had before that. I think before we had a like a Milwaukee that wasn't so hot. I think the newer ones are pretty darn good. The uh, That Snap-on one was okay. Uh, they came out with the second generation one. We traded that old one in on that. And that was quite a bit better. What The best thing about that was the screen size. And the image was sharper and everything than that first gen one. Uh, I think there's a newer one yet, an Elite. I'm thinking it's pretty good, but now, you know, at what point are you paying for the name uh, versus performance? Something you could get from another provider. Another imager I have is a uh, FLIR or FLIR, depending on where you live. Uh, I think it's a FLIR TG275. I was close. And then the other one, which might actually be the best one I have is the Top Done TC001 that I use. I use it with my cell phone. I could use it with a tablet or whatever. Does the Top Done one on your phone allow you to overlay the regular image with the thermal image? I'm pretty sure. Okay. I haven't tried the Top Done ones. Yeah, I mean, I haven't separated them all. Like the Snap-on, if you hit the arrows, and the FLIR, quite honestly, it, it'll flip back and forth. I honestly haven't even tried on the Top Done. I got a level with you like I, I haven't. Now we're going to have to play with it. But one of the things that goes on with or ha- did happen with thermal imagers, some of you listening may have noticed that about two years ago, I think it was COVID is making me hazy on the timeline here. <laughs> Everything ran together. And it you was had about- COVID? <laughs> now you're hazy? Or- <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I've been fortunate so far. No, I can't remember it. I'm screwed up because of not having like the regular events and I keep track of time with the events. And when the events didn't happen, that totally screwed up my timeline of things. Um, but I think it was two years ago, FLIR decided not to renew a patent. And when they decided not to renew a patent, then that opened it up to everyone else. So that's when all the HTI thermal imagers and all of those other ones came out. So that really 
started it. Like FLIR was the imager FLIR and Seek. And those were the only ones that were out there for a long time. And they were so much cost effective. And then that patent was not renewed. And all of a sudden, everything became super cost effective. So now there's a whole bunch of different ones out there that are relatively cheap. Also kind of interesting to do your due diligence and kind of try to look at as many online as you can, because there's a lot of rebranding going on. So for example, the HTI one was being rebranded by like, well, there's I think six different HTI models now or something, but a bunch of the HTI models were being rebranded by various companies and the prices were astronomically different from one to the other. If you bought direct or if you bought, you know, rebranded version. So there's a lot of different ones out there for sure. Yeah. And maybe doing damage control here, but also trying to level with you. I haven't played around with a a bunch of the uh, features on the top down one, because honestly, when I use it, I just get what I want anyways from the image itself. It's, it's sharp enough to see what I want to see. So I haven't been messing around where the FLIR I did a a review for. So kind of forced uh, in that force, but that's what you do. You're going to review something. You're going to try to play with all the features and figure out everything. And the snap on was honestly just making mistakes, pushing buttons and (laughs) where'd the thermal imaging image go? Oh, yeah, I, I very honestly, I think the sharpest image I have right now is that the top-down one that I use with a it plugs in USB-C. Uh, I think they have handheld. I think everybody does now. I think Autel's got one. Or I know they do. I know they have one. I know Top-down has one. Launch, I'm sure, has one. They got everything. Yep. I mean, tons of them now. Milwaukee has another one that's out. DeWalt. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them out there. One of the things, too, you were talking about your picture resolution. So, that's another thing I found. We can reference this or stick the link in it somewhere too with this. There's a article I wrote for Vehicle Service Pros. It was in the P10 magazine on choosing a thermal imager. And for us in automotive screen resolution, or really it's like the camera resolution, is a really important thing. So 320 by 240 is kind of what I found to be the minimum. When I was asked to write the article on it, it was for, uh, it was like a guest article thing that I did through uh, Oasis Scientific. So Oasis sells them. And because of that, we took a whole bunch of different types from cheap to expensive and experimented with them and decided what worked best for automotive so they could kind of make a decision on what they were going to carry. Yeah, I knew Oasis had boroscopes. I guess I wasn't aware they had thermal imaging cameras. Yeah, yeah, we got them in, or I say we, that was the time I was doing a lot more with them. They're local to me and great friends of mine, and I still try to help them when I can, uh, but I don't do as much now with them. But at any rate, we got, like, when that patent was let go in HTI, kind of became the first person to make them all. Uh, They got a bunch of HTI ones. And I would say they were kind of the first in automotive to have them. And we were kind of in the background. Nobody really knew that we had them in because they didn't know what to sell yet until I looked at them and played with them to see what they should sell in the automotive space. And that was why I decided to write that article. Anything below that 320 by 240, you can't see wires real good. Um, you can't see like a fuse box, everything kind of blends together. If they overlay an image between thermal and regular and you can kind of change it back and forth, then if the resolution is lower, you can kind of get away with it. But as you go, I'm going to call it scale it deeper into the thermal side without having good resolution, then that causes a problem. We also played with some though that were really, really high resolution 
that did not have the like regular image overlay. And although the thermal image was really good, it made it still kind of tough to see fuse box stuff. So image resolution definitely isn't like everything. Having the ability to overlay both regular image and thermal is kind of a big thing for me. Yeah, I was looking at the specs on the uh, top done. 256 by 192. We were talking a little bit before how I felt the um, FLIR was a better imager than the um, Snap-on. But the screen size itself uh, is a little bit, I mean, quite a bit smaller. And in a way, that that's problematic. Yeah. And screen makes a big difference, too. I mean, that's one of the things people don't really, I guess, realize. This is a, something I learned with borescopes. When you have a like screen that's built into the imager, it's built into a borescope, they're trying to keep price down. So typically the screen is a very low quality screen. And like taking a camera, let's say, that has USB out and you're looking at the screen that's on it and the picture is terrible. And then you put it on like your laptop screen or your phone screen. You're like, wow, this is actually a really good camera. The screen is just terrible. <laughs> That's the other advantage to the ones that go on the phone is your phone has a really, really high resolution screen. So that helps with making the picture quality really good. To put it in perspective, the FLIR is 160 by 120. So that explains why I'm usually pretty happy with what the uh, Top Done is doing. And then... The Snap-on, I'm not sure this is the right one. This might be first gen, is 80 by 60. I find that almost unbelievably low. That looks like the older one. The other thing that's kind of confusing with thermal imaging stuff, when you start like looking to try to find different cameras, sometimes they give screen resolution and sometimes they give camera resolution. I'm trying to look just at the uh, thermal uh, sensor or... yeah. And so that makes it like really confusing for people when they start looking at why there hasn't been like an industry standard of let's just put down one of the resolutions instead of both. I really don't understand that. But yeah, that snap on even. So the one we have is um, 80 by 60. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, quite a bit behind the FLIR. And then, of course, at least what I have for a top down, which, you know, could be very, very comparable to the Seeks and yeah, HTIs and stuff like that. The phone camera one, the highest uh, resolution phone camera one I know of is an HTI one and it's 384 by 288. And that is the one, though, that does not overlay a regular picture with the thermal imaging. So although it's really high resolution, uh, because it doesn't overlay both, then it's kind of tough. We had joked around about doing this. I didn't really know if it would really happen, but I had called you. I had kind of a neat situation that I used one. And I suppose like this to be very transparent, the vast majority of the time I use a thermal imager is for looking at the heater hoses going into the heater core, scanning radiators or condensers, looking for cold spots or hot spots, you know, depending on what we're looking at and why. Defrost or defrog grids and the rear windows and then on the heated seats that is like the pretty much it i mean maybe once in a great while brakes maybe once in a great while wheel bearings i've seen people look at tires that were, are leaking which is always gets me that's something i never thought of but i've seen people do that i personally don't do it but you can see it 
they fill them up with YF first? Uh, as it comes out, it's cold enough that you can see it on most thermal imagers. If it's got a, I don't use it because I've never tried it. So I always feel like if I have a hole in a tire, it's going to be too small to see. But I've seen people do it. So that's just another random one. That's what I'm thinking. That's the main reason. Uh, parasitic drains, once in a great while, but it's got to be pretty sizable. What I found with parasitic drain, I really like it for that. You have to, if it's in the summer months here, I'm in South Carolina. If it's super hot out, the car can't be outside or else it's not able to find it. In the winter months, it's a lot easier. And then also the car has to not die because the circuit needs to still be hot when you go to put the imager on it. So if you leave a battery charger on it or a trickle charger over on it overnight so that it will keep it up, then you have a better chance of seeing it in the morning because the car is still alive, but it still can't be a hundred degrees out. It's gotta be like, if you're in an air conditioned shop and you do that, then you're golden. But I'm always sketched out by leaving a charger on a car in a shop. So the moral of the story is air conditioned the shop for parasitic drains. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a pretty good sized parasitic drain, then yeah, I'm definitely letting the vehicle sit overnight with a, maybe a maintainer or something to keep the everything awake or not awake. Definitely don't want everything awake, but charged up, battery charged up. And then um, I've had okay luck with that. But the vehicle I called you about, the reason we're doing this was a 1998 Chevy Astro van. So now everybody's going to check out because it's <laughs> so old. And Minnesota did not do its job and destroy this vehicle through corrosion and rust and oxidation. Anyways, the um, the complaint was is the brake fuse blows immediately. You put the brake fuse in, hit the brakes, pops, 20 amp fuse. And I guess the first thing I do is I jump the fuse with, you know, some sort of a light, 3157, 3156, a small headlight hold the brake pedal on, disconnect, you know, so this did not have connectors back by the brake lights. So I had to pull all the bulbs. I'm going to stop you real quick in case they don't know this trick. He's taking the fuse out and the bulb is going in place of the fuse. So you're each side of the bulb, one side on one side of the fuse light, one side on the other. So use like a spade kit to stick it in there. Because if the fuse is blowing, that means the downstream side of the fuse is touching the ground so that's why your light is lighting so that's what he's doing with the light if someone doesn't understand that yep yep good point and i'm disconnecting you know so looking at a wiring schematic i can see this feeds the high mount, high mount brake light and then through the turn signal switch feeds the brake lights and turn signals stuff like that so disconnect the um turn signal switch because it's right there by the uh, fuse block just up a little bit uh, seven millimeter bolt i think comes apart headlight still glowing right? and not just glowing i mean it's on bright i don't have connectors at the lamp lamp assemblies so the bulbs are pulled out and the high mount brake light is mounted on top on top of the roof in the right way back and it's an led strip and that's disconnected i still have a bright headlight so this thing is shorted to ground somewhere looking at the wiring schematic i can see that before it starts going to the back uh, in the left or driver's kick panel area kind of right behind the parking brake pedal is connector c200 and if i disconnect that the headlight goes out immediately i've pretty much proven that my issue is from the a pillar 
which is right there by that kick panel, that connector sits, to essentially the D pillar, if you will, the way back corner. We take out panels, lift carpet, kind of visually looking. Couple spots look suspect, no change. The headlight's still on, we're wiggling. You know, you don't want to grab that harness and just yank because the last thing you want to do is have those lights go out and have no idea what you did. (laughs) That would be terrible. So I get the idea, like everything's kind of exposed, can kind of see the harness everywhere. I'm going to grab the thermal imager and track this. So the headlight of choice was the first one was, um, I think it was like a 35, this is right. I think it's 3456, I think sealed beam. It's not huge, but it's, you know, enough. It, It pulls three, four amps. It wasn't enough. The thermal imager just really wouldn't pick that up. So then I grabbed a 6054, which is another sealed beam, but it's pretty good sized, right? And it does high and low beams. So I got them all wired together so that the high and low beams are on at the same time. And now I have these headlights in parallel to each other, but in place of the brake fuse. They are both glowing very brightly. I have them sitting on rigs because they get hot enough to kind of do some damage uh, to like carpets and stuff. Um, So then I wait you know, maybe 10 minutes, thermal imager and the harness has kind of a orange hue to it. It's not glowing orange. I can still grab the wires at the lights or so the wire that this is feeding is the white center high mount brake light. It's actually an LED, but brake light. That's what it's feeding. It's a white wire. I can grab this white wire and not burn my hand. It doesn't, it's not, I'm not cooking anything, but it's warm and the thermal imager even with that wire in the middle of the harness, kind of has a nice orange hue to it. You could definitely see it. So I start scanning down the harness. You might be thinking I'm looking for something to glow bright orange, but the reality is I'm, I am looking for when it goes from orange to blue or gray, you know, something of that, a big temperature drop. Cause at the shorted area is where the heat's going to stop after that point. It won't necessarily be hotter. It may be, depending on the failure. and may not even so much be like, it might be how it's exposed to the thermal imager than the actual temperature versus the wire in the coating, right? The insulation is going to do its job and insulate. So scanning right by the um, D pillar or the back corner on the passenger side. So this harness goes from the A pillar, from that connector 200 down along the, um, the drip rail. The Astro vans, you kind of have this step up and it's along that top of that step by this, the driver's seat runs along there and then down, you know, the left side, driver's side, uh, all the way back to the left corner. Then it goes up and over the hatch area and then back down on the passenger side in that back corner. As I'm scanning this all the way over to the passenger side, we get to where the trailer harness is, the four-wire trailer harness. And uh, whoever wired that in, and it looked fresh, whoever wired that in had wired the white brake light wire, center high mount wire, that does go to the trailer blunt cut. It's all it says on the wiring schematic, right? It's trailer blunt cut. They had wired that in with the trailer ground, dead short. But it was perfect. It was orange, 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 blue. So I showed uh, uh, one of the other techs and told him to cut it right at that connection, the butt connector. Lights go out immediately. 
customer was not overly enthusiastic about the cost to diagnose this, but then remembered that this really didn't start until they wired in their four pin or four way trailer connector. Self-induced. Yes. But that's such a great thing of like using the imager because a understanding current flow, but understanding that. So why Matt did this is because when those bulbs are in the circuit, it's creating heat in the circuit. Anytime you have current flow, you have heat. So if a circuit is on, it's going to be hot. And he was able to trace this circuit because the light bulbs were producing current or basically being fed current and creates heat all the way until the short point. Have you visited the Napa Auto Care member site lately? Since its relaunch in 2020, the Napa Auto Care member site has continued to evolve to keep members updated on all the Napa programs, promotions, member benefits, and business building tools to help your business thrive. Some features to the member site include never miss an update, stay current with notifications and announcements on the homepage, view the dashboard featuring your shop's financial status, take advantage of cost-saving member-exclusive promotions, a faster automated 2424 peace of mind warranty submission process, submit re-repair claims directly to the member site, and easily check the status there as well. Typically, the claim is settled and the EFT or credit card payment is sent within 48 hours. Turn searches into new customers with the referral tracker. Learn more about how a consumer Napa online search for your shop can generate new customers at no additional cost to members. Use this popular customer tool to evolve your marketing strategies to get the most business value. Own more than one Napa Auto Care? Link all facilities to one login and access all facilities as one user. You can also access the shop, Napa, Helm, or Pro Office website directly. Submit a pro image free look for a sneak peek at how you can co-brand your locally known name with the nationally recognized Napa brand. Submit online ASC certification renewal and test reimbursement. Exclusive access to dozens of industry-leading programs and solutions. If you are a Napa Auto Care member, visit member.napaautocare.com to access the member portal and take advantage of these many member benefits today. Not a Napa Auto Care Center? Contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store to learn more about how to join the Napa family. More to interject or build on what you're saying, it's Ohm's law. Current is the same everywhere in the circuit. So even though my bulbs are glowing red hot or, you know, brightly, if they're pulling just for a number, I didn't measure it. Maybe I should have, you know, for the sake of uh, building a case study or something. But those two headlights, maybe together... Maybe they are pulling 10 amps. Well, 10 amps, you can absolutely see those uh, lights on bright and throwing heat. But the rest of the wire is also carrying 10 amps. One of the things that I think is kind of neat to do with imagers, too, is once you understand that, you can even do, if you're chasing a a wire, you're trying to find a circuit. You can turn the circuit on in the car, and if just that circuit is on, and you know, okay, this is the fuse box that it goes into, and maybe you've narrowed it down to this is the connector, and you're trying to figure out which way does the wire go. Well, like for a turn signal, for example, you can see the wire glowing, and you can follow it with the thermal imager. But understanding things like that, just so many different uses for it. I like using it for that, tracing wires, obviously finding shorts like Matt said, 
any circuit that's stuck on a lot of times uh, Chrysler fuel pump relays that are in the tip-ums they'll fail to where they don't engage or don't turn on they'll also fail to where they are stuck on you can look at a tip-um and see that it's stuck on and then also be able to tell okay what circuit is it so there's just a lot of different uses for it yeah it's sometimes you forget i know i already brought it up but one of my other fellow techs one of my colleagues was looking at a rear defogger and you know he's back there with his meter and after a while it's kind of like hey you know what i think i have a better way you just sometimes you forget about it and of course then you go look at it and what he was looking at was on the back of a Mustang customer said it didn't work. Well, it did. It just didn't work all the way through. So he had a bunch of grids, if you will, that worked just fine, but then a bunch that did not work at all. And I told him like with this one image, you've got, you know, the top three and the bottom three or two or whatever glowing quite nicely. Do you really think this is a power feeder ground issue? I think we ended up on this one having the glass replaced, but there's a lot of, not, I, you know, I don't want to make it out like he spent all this time chasing his tail, but there was time invested in something that with, you know, one look probably could make a pretty accurate diag based off of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And looking at two, like, I guess other uses for it, misfires, you know, look at the one thing I found with looking at misfires with them is it's easier to tell when you first start the vehicle before the manifold gets heat soaked. So you can look at an exhaust manifold with it. Uh, and your misfiring cylinder, that leg of the manifold will be colder. Once the vehicle's ran for a while and the manifold gets heat soaked, it gets harder to be able to see. But you can find if you have a misfire that is constant, but it's not flagging, let's say on a Chrysler, perfect example, like a 3.6 Chrysler doesn't have live misfire um, and you're relying on mode 6 data or a scan tool that's showing mode 6 data and just refreshing it those cars sometimes are hard to figure out which cylinder is actually misfiring i'll turn on the imager and quick take a look at the front bank and the back bank and see which one it is you're going to be able to tell as soon as you start it up and i always think back to there was a case study that was in pretty sure it was in motor age and i don't know who wrote it and i've remembered this for years i've read it when i was like 15 years old or 16 years old they had a Jeep that had a exhaust manifold put on it that was not made correctly. That could have been written by, I've seen the case study by Thornton and Mana, but which magazine was it? I was thinking it was in Motor Age, but I don't. So Scott had wrote a few for them. It could have been Scott's, but I'm almost positive Bernie Thompson has ran into it as well. Okay. But I don't know if he wrote for them back then. If I had to put money on this. I would bet it was Scott Mana. I think it was. I think you're right on that. And it had a uh, runner that was not like drilled out, basically. And like what he had to go through to find it. And that's like, I guess I think about now I go, man, with a thermal imager, that's like a two second (laughs) process. But they didn't exist back then. So things like that, plug converters, there's just a lot of different uses for it. And I think we're just at like, we're so lucky of the things that we have today versus, you know, you know, cameras in general too. looking at, I said, we'd go into cell phone camera use and stuff too. The amount of times that I use just my cell phone camera when I'm like by myself and I need to see, does something actuate? I'm famous for doing this with like electronic actuators on a turbo. If I'm by myself and I'm trying to 
bi-directionally control it and I can't really see where it is, I'll just stick my phone down in there and record. Or <laughs> I do this with test light too a lot. I'll stick a test light in something and maybe I need to go actuate something inside the car and I set my phone up to record so it can see my test light and I run inside, do whatever I need to do and then come back out and replay the recording and see, did the test light come on? <laughs> so there's just a lot of stuff that we can use imaging stuff for that aids us in our day-to-day diagnostic routine that we really did not have in the past and we got beat up on things because of not having it. It really supports... And this is, you know, I'm being a little hypocritical because our shop has not switched shop management systems yet, but kind of supports the um, logic of going to something. One of the cloud-based, which, you know, I think there's probably like probably two heavy hitters and then two other up-and-comers that the shop management systems are on the cloud accessible by anything that can get on the web, essentially open a browser that. Now all your employees, specifically the technicians, have their phones. And now the the phones are tools, which I get it. Sometimes people abuse the other features of their phones. But it's like you're saying, how many times I'm grabbing my phone as a tool? Not just the flashlight, as a tool. I can't quite see up in there. Grab my phone, take a couple photos, flip through them, find one good one. Right Now I can make out the part number. Now I can make out how that connector is in there and that now, oh, okay, now I see what I got to do to disconnect it. Stuff like that. Just, and then as you're finding stuff, taking photos and boom, uploading it to the repair order, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Being able to document. And I've always thought that's kind of one of the neat things too, with specifically thermal imagers. I mean, when you can show a customer like, okay, this is what I found, especially with parasitic draw stuff. I was thinking about parasitic draw, plugged radiator, plugged condenser, those two things, especially like trying to explain to a customer how an AC system works and that their condenser is plugged in. Like it's really pretty much black magic to a customer at this point. So if I can show them an image that says, here's your condenser and see why like, or see how the top of this is one color and the bottom is a completely different color. It's not supposed to be like that. Like that's a very easy thing to show them. Being able to upload pictures to a shop management system, I think is just huge. And understanding too of like, I guess how to explain that to a customer, how to use that to your benefit, the transparency in the shop, kind of everything that goes along with that is just a win-win, I think. Yeah, Falco and I are talking about doing an episode on heat pumps. So I'm going to talk about, you know, how to hook up a AC machine, you know, and maybe fill a system up. He's going to talk about thermodynamics and enthalpy charts. <laughs> It'd be really in the weeds. He doesn't yeah. know that until he listens to this, but that's that's essentially what'll happen. Right. Oh, there you go. I guess another thing too I didn't talk about is not only obviously is you can see a plug condenser, but if you have a plug someplace else in an AC system, you can use your thermal imager for that too. I mean, you're going to see refrigerant moving and all of a sudden you're going to see, like, say you have a line that's plugged, you're going to have one temperature on one side of the clog and a different temperature on the other side of it. So if that's something you're looking for, I mean, that's a huge thing too. Yeah. The only thing I've ever seen it happen on was an older GM with an orifice tube. But I know people that have issues like where the mufflers get full of well, one or two things, right? Possibly metal, but I think the receiver dryer comes unglued and the desiccant starts going through the system and that muffler gets 
just chock full of uh, desiccant stuff and that big drop. Yeah, that happens a lot on Hondas. Hondas, the receiver dryer comes apart and then it ends up all through the system. And then you can use that cool visual inspection tool that we talked about, too. <laughs> yeah. But there's just so many different uses for you know different types of cameras, too. There is thermal imaging borescopes. I've played with them some. I haven't really used them a lot, but I mean, theoretically, you could use it to look at an evaporator. But the heads on them are still pretty big at this point or at least the last time I played with it, which was probably two years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was worried, thinking that how cool that would be to snake up and look at a heater core or an evaporator. If you have an evaporator leaking, that is like the tool to find it. Because obviously, refrigerant's really cold, so that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, you would charge it, not turn the AC system on, and just let it you know, run out basically and then look down in there with a thermal imager. Yeah. I was wondering about the field of vision. How far could you have the, you can't really call it the camera, I guess the, the tip, the end, how far away can you get it anyways, period. And then how wide of a field could you see and then see the temperature levels or I was wondering how well that would work out like up close. I'm sure it's great, but You'd want a little bit of distance so you could look at part of the uh, component, whatever that would be. With the refrigerant, I would think you could probably see it pretty good because once you're inside the evaporator box, you're going to be within a few inches of the evaporator. Like once you come down the duct into it, you wouldn't be too far away from it. But it's so much colder, theoretically, than what atmosphere would be. I would think you'd probably be able to still see it. See, again, I I haven't tried it. Kind of curious, I guess. I'm thinking to myself of whether or not I even still carry it. Oh yeah, there's. Oh, that's a real expensive one. Well, then it's got to be good. There's a cheaper version of that was like I think 400 to a thousand bucks, but I just found one that's like nine thousand dollars. <laughs> so that's a real expensive one. But we don't need that. But there is. Oh, the shop needs a write-off. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this one articulates too. So a lot of different options, I guess, out there as far as that. The only other thing I think that I forgot to kind of cover in the beginning as far as like choosing them is making sure that whatever one you have has emissivity settings. Emissivity is basically helping you with color choice more or less. It's whether an object is shiny or not is, I guess, the technical term of it. But you have to pay attention to the emissivity chart and what you're looking at and also try to not look at something that's shiny in direct sunlight or else it basically tries to read the sun's temperature and we'll throw that <laughs> out as well. Yeah. It'd be cool to have maybe some of the ones coming down the pipe are going to have this. It'd be kind of nice to be able to set the range to reject. And I'm thinking mainly above a certain threshold for just an example. I'm looking at the heater hoses going into the heater core at the firewall, but there's an exhaust manifold nearby. So if that is in the uh, viewing of the uh, heater hoses, it throws them off. The color of the heater hoses, even if they're at 180 degrees Fahrenheit, they're bluish maybe, yellow maybe, because the exhaust manifold is going to be white or orange. And it'd be kind of cool to reject that and just say, okay, anything above... 200, 250 degrees Fahrenheit is going to be 
white or black, it just won't even, it'll just ignore it so that the 180 I can really focus on because where it throws things off is I'm looking for a temperature drop. If I've got this super hot exhaust manifold, that's hundreds and hundreds of degrees higher than the heater hoses. Now the heater hoses that maybe have a 50, 60 degree temperature difference, which would be an issue, doesn't show up so good. Now you're just using your imager like you would a digital thermometer or contactless thermometer that you're just reading the numbers. The colors mean squat because the exhaust manifold throws it off. So it'd be kind of cool to have a, a like a certain temperature reject. Yeah, or be able to like circle an area and reject it. Right. Anything outside of this area just ignores it. Yeah. And the other thing that's kind of weird that just made me think about it, with most thermometers, not all, but most, a lot of them don't record video. So when you're trying to show like a change in a heater hose and you're trying to show, okay, like as it gradually warms up or something and you can't take a video, you can only take a picture. So that's where most of the cell phone ones you can take a video with. So that's kind of, I'm a fan of that. And the Seek one, I know you can uh, do videos with the Seek one as well, but like the HTI ones don't do videos. Most of the FLIRs don't do videos. I know the original Snap-on didn't do video. I guess I don't know about the second Snap-on. The second gen certainly does not. I think there is a third Elite, which I don't have and I can't speak to. And maybe they just throw the word Elite on it and charge a little extra for it and... It's a higher res camera. I, I don't. I really don't know. And some of them too. The very early ones, if my memory is right, didn't even take pictures. They were only live. The FLIR multimeter that got passed around through everybody for a little bit. <laughs> so the demo unit that AES Wave had. That's <laughs> and it got passed around for everyone. That one we had learned. I'm trying to remember when I had it. I don't think it took pictures. I think it was only live. And I don't remember that for 100%. But yeah, so we've come a long way since then. But that's another thing to keep in mind when you're looking at it is if you want video, make sure it says it takes video because there's a good chance it won't. Yeah, the Snap-on one, the one thing that is nice about that is you do connect that to Wi-Fi. And it will upload the uh, photos to the Altus drive which is kind of nice because now that is accessible anywhere uh, on a PC that comes in very nice, very handy. It's very easy. It just, and it automatically does it. You, you squeeze the trigger, take a photo, boom, uploads it. Yeah. That's, and that's one thing. I mean, I'm a big fan of cell phone stuff for that. I, the shop management software that I use, it just makes it so much easier to be able to upload directly from that. Since it obviously already accesses your cell phone when you go to attach pictures not having to put it anywhere else is definitely a huge plus for me in my day-to-day mobile business. I mean, you can always take them home and check, at least in Minnesota, it's kind of nice on a cold day, walk around the house and see what uh, <laughs> <laughs> what needs insulating. You can do that too, but this just reminded me of something that is actually really important. Automotive related, not car related, for shop owners that have a heated floor. This is huge because I worked for a shop that ran into this twice. If you have a heated floor and everyone that has a heated floor already knows this, those that don't, don't. Once you have a heated floor, you don't know where your heat tubes are in the floor. And if you have to drill for a lift or anything and you hit a heat tube, you're going to break up the floor to fix the heat tube. So it's very, very important to know where they are. The shop that I worked for, 
put it in a new floor, did not do the measurements correctly, and then hit it. And this was before I was working there, hit it like as soon as they went to put the lifts in, then had to take the floor back up. And then they did a addition to the shop while I was there, measured everything out correctly, knew where everything was, and the dimensions of the lift were different than what they were told for where the bolt holes were. So they immediately were like, oh crap, are we going to hit them again? They at least knew where they were, but the plan went sideways basically because of that. Uh, you can use a thermal imager. You, It's easiest when the floor is cold or colder and then you turn it on. You can find where it is in the floor so that you don't drill into it. And that's a huge thing if you're moving lifts in your shop or anything, obviously, that you're going to bolt to the floor. But lifts is the most common. That is really good advice. <laughs> Hopefully I saved somebody like tens of thousands of dollars in ruining their floor. The first time I saw that, I was like, huh, that it came in handy. This was years ago when I was at that shop, but that it definitely, definitely came in handy. Yeah, that was really good advice. I thought you were going to say, show the shop owner or manager why you need ceiling fans. You can do that too. You can find all the rest of the... You don't need a thermal imager for that, but it's cool. I've also been told, I guess, and now I haven't tried this, but your insulation thing also just made me think about, I'm told that if you take a car and turn the AC on in the car with all the doors shut, that you can find if you have an air leak, like if you're chasing an air leak in a car or an air leak sound, that you can find it. I personally have not tried that, but that's another one that I've heard people say that they've used it for. I feel like that would be tough but i guess if it's 100 outside and you let the car run for 20 or 30 minutes outside where you get the inside temperature of the car down to like 65 or 70 it might be cool enough in that area for it to come out i know that you could spray soapy water if you plug off the vents on the back of a car this was some oems video they showed about taping off the vents in the car and turning the air conditioning on and spraying soapy water around to find air leaks around like door seals and stuff like that. So I guess I suppose if air comes out of that, that maybe you could find it again. I haven't tried it. I mean, we just pressurize the interior and then jump it into a swimming pool and look for the bubbles. We find all of the leaks that way. I've used smoke machines. Uh, smoke machine works pretty good. Normally I'll stick it inside the car and fill the car with smoke and let it sit there. But I think that covers all the uses that I've used them for. At least that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, at least the common ones, right? You know, and of course the seat heater grids comes in very valuable, uh, especially before and afters. Showing a customer before and after you replace the the grids and the seats. It's only happened, I mean, it's got to be less than half a dozen times. It's not that common, but once in a while, uh, if you have a noise, and I'm thinking like a serpentine belt type pulley noise or something that's driven by the serpentine belt and it's really getting tough to narrow down the thermal imager will point you in the right direction you don't want the engine too hot uh, but if it's making noise uh, and honestly even if it isn't a lot of times it'll point you in the right direction like hey look this pulley uh, is generating a lot of heat and i think of only a couple of them just didn't seem if you took a, the belt off and spun them not too much it wasn't too much there. Like you weren't thinking like, oh man, that's bad. But if you could really load it, then you could get that kind of growl feel. I'm thinking that sound. Again, it's it doesn't happen that often. It's not like you're getting your butt kicked that often by the noises like that. 
but it's something to keep in the back of your head. Yet another test just in case, you know, maybe it's not in the top five tests that you're going to run, but maybe when those first five fail and now you're on to the next five, it's worth just grabbing, right? It takes a few minutes, boom, maybe gives you an answer. And like we talked about with parasitic draw testing, like when it does work, it's so much fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you get lucky and it works, it's literally, okay, look at the fuse box. Yep, that's the fuse that's had. Okay, what does that go to? And then, okay, it goes to this component. Go right to the component. Don't remove anything. Like, if the component's really hot, like, I guess I think about the one I, I used to use it for all the time was Honda's, the Bluetooth module. And you just like... Yeah, you stole my example. <laughs> yeah, because they were so common, you got to like know where they were and you didn't even look at the fuse box. You just left the car on all night with a maintainer outside and you went in the morning and went to wherever the Bluetooth module was and held the thermal imager over that panel and saw if it was hot. And if it was, then you're like, yeah. That was my freaking example. <laughs> yeah, I had one. It ended up, it, was, it would keep the data bus awake. Okay. Yeah. But it was a Mercedes ML and it was the rear hatch latch. But I found it with a thermal imager, honestly, because I didn't know what else to do. Right. I had no idea what to do. And so it sat inside all night. And I don't think it mattered if it was in the winter or whatever. I don't think it was the winter. But I grabbed the thermal imager and I just started walking around. And it really was looking inside through the windows. Well, I had the windows down, but I was looking inside with it. Didn't see anything. And I just so happened to be kind of walking around the vehicle and I saw this flash of orange, which I thought was just kind of a mistake, but no one, I kept follow, you know, zeroing in. It's like a freaking latch that thinks that either it thought the door was open or it thought it was changing States, but it's like, yeah, replace the latch, fix the car. It's also kind of funny mentioned about that. Like you thought it was a mistake and I've found things, my wife's car. Um, my wife has a Honda and the battery was dying and I thought it was the Bluetooth module. So of course I go right to it and I check it and it's not. And I'm like, it started like it was dying like overnight, over and over and over again. So I'm being lazy. I'm using the thermal imager. I really don't want to look at my wife's car. And I'm just like scanning the inside of the car in the driver's side, like sill was orange and like glowing in the thermal imager. And I'm like, ah, that's not it. Something else is, and I'm looking all over and finally I'm like, nah, it's definitely like glowing there. And I didn't take, I had nothing apart at that point. So I like kind of open the door and I close the latch so that I can make sure that something is there and I get closer to it. And there's like a line down the sill in the imager. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. And I lift the sill up and it was from a remote start. Somebody had ran, I don't even know why the wire was ran in the sill, but it was, and it was like completely melted. Like, her car should have burnt up. Like, <laughs> so I find this melted wire and I like start tracing it. it goes to what's left of the remote start. Literally all of the wires under the dash to the remote start were melted. You know, it's the installs like that, that give us all, all us remote start installers, a bad name. <laughs> yeah. But so that was the short as it was, that would stay alive. It was a like hot power feed, to it and yeah they had basically it went over the like weld that was in the door sill and it was pinched against it and it cut it and then melted basically it melted the wire that went up to the remote start and melted the connector and then in return melted all the rest of the wires that were in it but yeah it was a uh, luckily it didn't burn the house down i just kept charging the battery and finally i was like all right i guess i should probably look at this and so yeah 
you want to burn your house down, you just buy a Volt. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's probably as much as we joke about that now, the electric cars. That's going to be a big thing. Fire departments use it when they put a fire out in a house to know if there's a hot spot. I'm throwing Lucas Underwood under the bus here right now. That was we had a truck that he and I lit on fire on accident driving it. Uh, a customer dropped it off and we went and drove it. Like didn't know anything about it. Customer dropped it off. It was running real rough. We went and drove it and it lit the cats on fire in the gas station that we pulled into. I went and visited them. <laughs> we pulled into a gas station and I'm in the truck holding a scan tool. I just stopped there and he's like, hey, quick, help me look at this truck. And we go drive it, get into the gas station. He opens the door and he's like, you got to get out. The truck's on fire. And he just closes the door. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And all of a sudden, I'm like still sitting there. I'm like, what did he say? He opens the door. He's like, get out. The truck's on fire. <laughs> like right out of casino yeah. at the end. So I jump out. and The truck is literally on fire. The cat's lit the like insulation on the bottom of the truck on fire. And you're at the gas pump, so you might as well make it a rager. Yeah, exactly. So I run inside, tell the guy to shut off the gas pumps, and luckily we found some fire extinguishers and put it out. It didn't cause any harm to the truck, didn't cause any harm to the gas pumps or anything, because it was just the insulation. The lady ended up telling him later on that she's like she dropped the truck off, and when he called her and told her this, she's like, that explains why I was smoking so bad when we dropped it off to you. So obviously it also wasn't the first time. So it wasn't like it was something we did. Like I said, his guys hadn't worked on it at all. It was strictly somebody dropped it off and they got in it and drove it. And this is what happened to him and I, but where I'm going with this is the fire department is like, are you guys sure that it's out? Cause they got there and I already put it out with a fire extinguisher. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. And he's like, well, let me check. And he gets a thermal imager and he goes over and he checks the entire truck to make sure there's no hot spot in it with electric vehicles. That's, probably i would think going to become more and more of a thing especially they just said in florida right now they're having a bunch of issues because they were all flooded that now all of a sudden all these cars they put in well people that have what i want to say wrecker services that have been pulling cars out of areas that were flooded down there from the hurricane that all of a sudden they're all lighting on fire so obviously we know we've seen that but with areas particularly particularly like florida easy way to know if they're going to light on fire. I mean, the battery doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't just combust. I mean, obviously at one point it does, but you should be able to look at it and know if there's a hot spot on it. So I would think you'd probably be able to look at them with a thermal imager before sticking them out in a lot and say, yeah, this battery's, you know, pretty hot and, or has a hot spot in it. Something's going on internally to it. Be able to tell if you're going to have an issue or not, if you're going to have a thermal event. I think it's fitting that you brought up the uh, story with you and Lucas trying to burn that truck to the ground. <laughs> Specifically naming the cats, because I really would not want to finish this episode without urging everyone to not use your thermal imager to diagnose cats. It doesn't work. It doesn't tell you what it what you think it does. I would reference, I think, episode 29 of this podcast. Yep, I have Jim Kemper on who is an expert, used to work for the Colorado State Department of Health, and we discuss catalytic converters in there and the temperature uh, monitoring method. If that works so freaking great, don't you think the car manufacturers would have either either thermal imagers under the car or some sort of temperature sensors for cat efficiency? They don't do it. Why? Because it doesn't work. Your converters, too, are 
typically over 600 degrees. In most thermal imagers, you'll find the temperature range doesn't go that high. Some of them do, but a lot of them have like up to a 900 degree range. So that's an issue too. The one thing that I will say you can have some success with, and because converters are hot, you can't do this when it's running. If you think you have like a plug converter, you can start the vehicle and look like start it, rev it real quick and look for that like 10 seconds and see. And if it's completely plugged, you're going to obviously know because it's going to be you're going to be hot up to this extent and then completely cold. But if it runs for any amount of time after that, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's sensible. Comparing a inlet versus outlet temperature. I mean, really, I don't know where you think you're going with that. No. <laughs> On that disappointment, we'll just call it a call it an episode. Perfect. Thank you very, very much, Tanner, for joining me once again. I can't wait to have you on again. We've covered flashlights, visual inspections, boroscopes, now thermal imaging cameras, and cell phone, cell phone cameras. I'm not sure what else. Both security cameras. You all have to tell us what other topics you want us to cover. What other late night topic would you like us to cover? (laughs) Ultraviolet light. (laughs) All right. Well, take care, sir. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again to Tanner. And uh, just remember, if you want to be on the podcast, if you have topic ideas, I'm very easy to get a hold of via social media, or you can email me at mattfonzlopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Napa for sponsoring. Thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for really making this possible. And uh, until next time, everyone, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.